Hi everybody, how's it going? Before jumping into this week's episode, I just wanted to say really quickly, sorry about the two-week hiatus. Things got a little crazy at school, but we are back in business. So without further ado, here we go with this week's episode. Enjoy. Scientist the Human Podcast, commencing. Welcome to this episode of Scientist the Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simranjit Singh, and I'm here with Dr. Andrew Darwin, who is a bacteriologist and a professor at the NYU School of Medicine. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. All right, you study two pretty interesting pathogens. Um, I'm probably going to mispronounce the names, but I'm going to try <laughs> to pronounce them anyway. One is Yersinia enterocolitis. Almost. Almost. Yersinia enterocolitica. Yersinia enterocolitica. And the second one is Pseudomonas arginosa. Yep. All right. And... Why study these bacteria? Why are they important? Different reasons, really. Uh, Yersinia enterocolitica is, is a human pathogen. It does cause disease. It doesn't cause um, what most people would consider serious disease. Um, so it causes a mild gastroenteritis. It, it's fairly common in, in, in colder countries. Um, probably a few thousand cases, maybe, in the US every year. Most of them will go unreported. But it's a great model organism. Um, Yersinia enterocolitica has been really used for some, some seminal discoveries in bacterial pathogenesis. So very widespread mechanism known as type 3 secretion that's used now by many, many pathogens was originally discovered in, in Yersinia enterocolitica. Um, also, the ability of bacteria to enter um, our cells was, was discovered using Yersinia. So, and it continues to be a great model organism for that reason. A pathogen in its own right, but also an organism um, that we can study and then apply that knowledge to a lot of other important um, disease-causing agents. Pseudomonas aeruginosa is, 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 is a different kind of kettle of fish. So Pseudomonas is an incredibly important pathogen. So it's one of the most common causes of hospital-acquired infections. It can cause very serious, life-threatening infections of patients on ventilators, patients with wounds, especially burns. Um, and another reason that Pseudomonas originosa gets a lot of uh, press, if you like, is that cystic fibrosis patients um, invariably become um, colonized by this organism, right. and it becomes a lifelong colonization that, that ultimately leads to, to death in a lot of cases. And in terms of the epidemiology, <clears throat> you said... So Pseudomonas is right up there with staph infections, right? Staphylococcus aureus in terms they're, of hospital acquired. Yeah, they're based, right? generally often described as number one and two, staph being number one, mm-hmm. um, typically in the intensive care unit, for example. Right. And <clears throat> you previously mentioned, well, not just now, but um, in the seminar you gave last week, uh-huh. that uh, Yersinia, the, the Yersinia pathogen that you work with is actually a cousin of the Yersinia pathogen that causes the plague. Correct. Yeah. Which is, so how, how, how similar, or how di- or what exactly makes the, the Yersinia that you work with different from the one that causes the plague? Um, uh, quite a lot of years of evolution. Um, so Yersinia that causes the plague is, is Yersinia pestis. Um, and it's certainly very closely related to the organism I study, but there are, there's, depending on, on what you read, maybe a million years of, of evolutionary divergence between the two, which is, which is a lot. Um, however, um, some of the virulence factors that the Yersinia I study and the Yersinia that causes the plague use are essentially identical. 
right. particularly the, the type 3 secretion that I mentioned mm -hmm. is encoded on a plasmid that both your seniors have and it looks pretty much the same in both cases and works in the same the same way so one of the issues with working you might you know you might say well why not work on your senior pestis that causes plague well <laughs> a lot of labs do but there are issues number one you require a biosafety level three facility, right. which, which you know are yeah. available. We do have them here at NYU, but but it's an additional layer of, of logistical issues. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, because the organism that causes plague is considered to be a potential bioweapon, there are even tighter controls from the, from the federal government right. um, that, that make it you know even that much more difficult. So mm -hmm. it's cheaper and easier to work on a pathogen that, that doesn't require those kind of um, you know regulations and yet it has a lot of the similar uh, right and yet you can affecting. learn yeah. now of course you can't you, you you can't make the argument that you can you only need to study your senior and everything you learn will be applicable to the organism that causes uh, the plague that's clearly not true right? Right. there's yeah. many many questions you have to work on the real organism um, but because my own research is not, not obviously focused on plague pathogenesis, that, mm. that's not an area that we, we are in, although many labs are. Mm. So, so uh, with the pathogens that you, that you do study, you, part of your research focuses on cell envelope stress. Mm -hmm. And so, so from my, my understanding is that these pathogens, and you mentioned type 3 secretion systems, use, and there are several types of these, right? Okay. So, these pathogens use uh, these secretion systems to, I guess, uh, what the type 3 specifically, they use it to inject specific proteins into the host cells in order to infect the host cell. Right. And sometimes uh, there's, a, there's a family of these proteins called secretins that might get expressed on the inner envelope. And of course, these, these bacteria are gram negative, right? right? So there, there is a inner and an outer membrane. Yep. So these proteins get can mistakenly get expressed on the inner envelope and that can cause cell stress? Is that the source? That's essentially true. I mean, you know, so the type 3 secretion system is a complex uh, multi-protein apparatus that the bacteria assemble in their envelope and, and it's been described as a molecular syringe. So it injects proteins from the bacterial cell into our cells, into host cells to, to do, you know, bad things. My interest is a little bit strange in that kind of regard in that we've learned that one of the components of the type 3 secretion system that the bacteria must assemble in its envelope can occasionally mislocalize. And it's that mislocalization to the incorrect membrane or the inner membrane that causes stress. Mm -hmm. And that's really the, the question that we <coughs> we study um, and has really founded a lot of the work on both organisms in, in, in my lab. And how, how does this stress manifest? How do you measure it? Uh, very simply, really, if when the, the the component of the type three secretion system mislocalizes, it kills the bacteria. Oh, okay. So that's, that's a, a very easy way to to, mm -hmm. to test it. And in fact, you know, the way we, we came across, I came across this originally, I was a postdoc in Virginia Miller's lab looking for genes in Yersinia that just are required to cause disease in, in an animal model. And one of the the mutations we found was in this stress response. Mm -hmm. And so what we think was happening is, is the bacteria were infecting the animal, they make their type 3 secretion system, and in doing so, some of this component mislocalizes, and without the stress response, they die. So, okay. so we can measure stress in the lab very easily by just looking at the survival of the organism. 
So if if let's say they the bacteria does not have a stress response, and let's say the type three secretion system mislocalizes to the inner membrane, is it just the mislocalization? What what happens as a result of the mislocalization that causes the cell to die? So insofar as we can we can tell, so the, the protein that mislocalizes is a single protein that normally forms a multimeric um, pore in the outer membrane, right? Mm -hmm. That is the pore through which the type 3 secretion system exports its proteins. Right. And that, that pore is controlled and it's, it's opened and closed at the appropriate time when it's part of the entire secretion system. However, when that pore-forming protein mislocalizes to the inner membrane, you've essentially now got a hole in your inner membrane. And the inner membrane is incredibly important for the bacteria. It's where you control the influx and efflux of important nutrients and also ions. They use it to form something called a proton gradient, which is how they um, generate energy. Um, and what happens when this protein mislocalizes is the proton gradient collapses, but also you start to get leakage you now of, of large-ish molecules through the membrane. And in fact, if we look at the cells under the EM, what we saw is that in some cases it, it literally looked as if the cytoplasm of the cell was shrinking when, when this happened. Mm -hmm. You mentioned EM, and that's electron microscope, right? Correct. Yeah. And uh, which is a huge apparatus that you have to fix a specimen, right, right which right. means that it's not live. Exactly. And yeah. you beam electrons at it and you get right. an image. It's a very crude description, but... That's it's, it's an accurate description. It actually raises a good point, which is because you have to treat the bacteria pretty harshly be able to visualize them in the EM, right. there's always a risk that what you see is a result of the treatment rather than right. what the cells really did look like. And But how would you... Because we have... In most cases, you have to use this particular imaging technique to get a clear picture. How would you... Yeah, differentiate. Well, so so ultimately you can't, but I'll tell you what we tried to do. So a, a traditional EM fixation is a pretty harsh chemical treatment of the cells. There are more modern techniques um, involving cryo-freezing or uh, rapid freezing of bacterial cells which don't require the harsh chemical fixatives. So we used both methods to, oh, okay. to visualize the cells um, to make sure we saw the same, uh, the same phenomena. The other thing to point out is when I say it looks like you know a stressed defective mutants that the cytoplasm shrinks, we never saw that in the wild type bacteria, right? Mm. So even if it's something that happened during sample processing, it still tells you that there's a difference between those two cells. One of them is more susceptible to the processing. But mm. ultimately, it's very difficult, of course, to to answer that question, right? Mm. Because you have to treat the cells a certain way to visualize them, right. um, and so you can never rule out that it's the treatment rather than what they look like beforehand. In fact, almost certainly the cells did not look like that before the treatment. <laughs> Generally, cells in the EM, that's not what they look like. Um, you know, so, right? you, so you've compared cells uh, before and after the treatment for the EM, and they definitely do not look like Well, I mean, just... EM damages cells, you know, it mm -hmm. basically it can damage membranes, it can change structures in cells, okay. and so, you know, it, it's just, it, you know, almost certainly I can say okay. that, that they're not going to be the same as, as prior to, to treatment. But to see the kind of thing that I'm talking about, the separation of membranes, the shrinkage of the cytoplasm, you really need the magnification of the electron right. microscope mm -hmm. to be able to see that kind of thing. In terms of the stress response, that's that's one of the differences between the Yersinia that you work with and the Pseudomonas that you work with, right? right. There is, so the Yersinia has a specific stress response that the Pseudomonas 
does not have. have. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? About yeah, I mean, in fact, that's why we started to study pseudomonas. So the mm -hmm. stress response that we study in your senior, um, which incidentally is called a phage shock protein system. Um, it's and a phage, sorry to jump in, a phage is, uh, when you say phage, you mean bacteriophage? Yeah. Which is essentially a virus that attacks bacteria. bacteria. Right. Okay. And, and the reason it has that name, the stress response, is because it was originally discovered by Peter Modell at Rockefeller University. And he was infecting E. coli bacteria with a virus. And when he did so, the stress response that we study mm. actually switched on. And the reason it switched on is that that virus uses one of these outer membrane pore forming proteins that you find in type 3 secretion systems. Oh, okay. um, and so, the, one of the really intriguing things about the stress response in your senior is that when this pore forming protein mislocalizes, if you look at gene expression of all the genes in the bacteria, the only ones that change are the stress response we study. So, there's this incredibly um, specific relationship between mislocalization of the pore forming protein and activation of our stress response. And, and moreover, when you look for mutants of the bacteria that can't survive when the pore forming protein mislocalizes, you really only find stress response, our stress response knockout mutants, right? That's all you need to survive. Right. And so that got me thinking about, well, there are bacteria out there that have these pore forming proteins um, type 3 secretion systems and other export systems that use the same pore forming protein but don't have the stress response that we study in Yersinia. And just purely out of um, scientific curiosity, I wanted to, to understand why that was. How could you get away with not having the stress response? And, and so really that's how we got into Pseudomonas. Um, and so what we did is we looked for pseudomonas mutants that couldn't survive when we produced one of these pore forming proteins at a level that would force it to mislocalize into the wrong membrane. Um, and what we found, we found a number of things in pseudomonas, um, but we did not find a stress response system. It does not seem to have a stress response. Um, what we found is mutations which actually cause that mislocalization potentially to happen more or in some way make the cell envelope more sensitive to the damage that it can cause by interfering with, with probably broad systems in pseudomonas involved in, in putting its cell envelope together. Mm. Um, so, and, and so the pseudomonas work that we've done has really started now to go off in, in a completely different direction to, to the Yersinia research. In Yersinia we study a very specific stress response and in pseudomonas, we study actually a number of proteins that we think are involved in basic cell envelope, physiology, structure, function. Um, so, so there's a particular protein, right, or a particular group of proteins that their secretion essentially leads to the mislocalization of this type 3 secretion system, in Yersinia at least. Right, or is that it, we, we think the mislocalization in Yersinia just happens for whatever reason inherently. Right? Okay. So when Yersinia is making its type 3 secretion system, this one pore forming protein that should go to the outer membrane, it does go to the outer membrane almost all the time, but some small percentage of it gets it wrong. Oh, okay. It goes in the wrong membrane. Mm -hmm. Now, you might ask evolutionarily why why have that? Why hasn't evolution fixed that problem? Mm -hmm. Right? 
And the answer is, I don't know. Right? <laughs> but you can't really answer the why question in science. And so, but it's it's kind of in the process of fixing it, right? It could be because you because you say if it's mislocalized and right. more, you know, very often the that, sky dies. That's certainly possible. Another yeah. possibility is yeah. maybe if it was 100% efficient and always going to the correct place for some reason that we don't understand, that might have a negative consequence. Right? That's possible. Hmm. That's right? Okay. Yeah. That, that we're just not aware of. Right. right. It's an explanation. Right. Yeah. So, I always thought, I always found it very interesting that so there's for example let's let's take the the, the human the mm-hmm. immune system we're not well, it, it might be looking at this from a different angle but I guess that's fine because we're not infecting anything necessarily but um, our immune system when it kind of rises in defense mm-hmm. uh, to uh, an invasion of a pathogenic uh, microbe it's like an, like a, a, a strong response can often be harmful to our, our own body, and I also found that to be interesting. That right. things that organisms need to survive can also be detrimental. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, I think that kind of applies here with the bacteria as well. And that this they they need this this these secretion systems, this type three secretion system, in order to propagate, in order right. to infect their host. But at the same time. Right, there could be some some mistakes. In yeah, that. yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, definitely. I mean, if you think about virulence, fa- what we call virulence factors mm-hmm. in bacteria in general, most of them, almost all of them, either have to be secreted, so they have to get across the cell envelope, or they have to be assembled in or on the surface of the bacterial cell. And that means that you've got to basically mess around with the integrity of your envelope and and that that can clearly have consequences. And in fact, in the field of certainly gram-negative bacterial pathogenesis recently, a lot of labs now study what we call envelope stress responses. Not necessarily the one we study, there are others that are activated when bacteria make different virulence factors. And a number of labs now have started to, to study the role of those stress responses in um, in pathogenesis, right? and, and it turns out that the roles are complicated and different, and, and, and very interesting. I, I just wanted uh, to ask a quick clarification question: mm-hmm. Is there a reason that you're using the word envelope and not membrane, or is it just the same? Yes, yeah, so there's, there's a very good reason. Okay. So, envelope of a gram-negative bacteria refers basically to everything except the cytoplasm. So, if I say for example, the E. coli cell envelope, I'm talking about the inner membrane, the cell wall or the peptidoglycan, the outer membrane, and ah, the space, okay. which we call the periplasm between them. The whole thing is the envelope. Got it. Right? Okay. Now, the terms will get misused. Some people will, for example, say cell wall, referring to the entire envelope. The cell wall is specifically one component within the cell envelope, which is known as the, the peptidoglycan layer, which gives mm. cells its strength. So this um, this issue of uh, mislocalization of, of this uh, protein or type three secretion system, um, the 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 pathogens that you work with are gram negative and that they have this inner and outer membrane. So would this would this mislocalization issue only be present in gram negative bacteria? The the particular issue that we study, yes, because. The protein that we study is normally in the outer membrane. Mm-hmm. Gram positives don't have an outer membrane, right. so they never have any reason, obviously, to put anything there. In fact, type 3 secretion is a uniquely gram negative phenomenon. Gram positives 
actually have it easy, if you like, because whereas if a gram-negative is going to get something out of its cell, it's got to deal with the outer membrane. Mm -hmm. A gram-positive doesn't. Right? So a gram-positive has to deal only with its, with its inner membrane mm -hmm. and also its, its peptidoglycan. Um, do gram-negative bacteria also have a type 3 secretion type uh, um, system in which they're kind of like the syringe type mechanism that you uh, yeah. describe? Well, gram-positive. So gram-positives, actually, it's very interesting. So for a long time in gram-positive bacteria, people didn't really think that there were dedicated secretion systems, and, and to some extent that's, that's probably true. What I mean by that is all you have to do if you're a gram-positive bacteria is get something across your inner membrane, and there's a very widely conserved mechanism in, in not just in bacteria but in our cells called the sac-dependent export, mm. which will do that, right? And so that's all you need in gram-positives, because once you've got something by your what's called a sac system across your inner membrane, it, it's already out, right? Right. So, um, sure, there is another issue, which is the cell wall. The cell wall of gram-positive is very thick compared to gram-negatives. It's much more what we call cross-linked, which means there's a lot less gaps mm -hmm. in the layers. And so you still need to get your molecules, if they're of a particular size, through the cell wall. Um, but, you know, some recent work has suggested that in gram-positives there might be more specific secretion systems. There, there are pili in gram-positives, which mm -hmm. are secretion-like systems that put appendages on the outside of the cell. The sec um, translocon in gram-positives has been described as, as actually being specifically localized in certain areas for the purpose of exporting proteins out mm -hmm. of cells at particular points. But, right. but the, the, the complex you know, 10, 20, 30 protein systems like type 3 secretion and others in gram-negatives, those you don't find in gram-positives. Okay. So, but like the sex system that you described, it's, it's so it, that that is involving the exocytosis and, and right and kind of uh, bringing proteins out of the, the the cell. But it's not; it, it just releases them. Of course, it, it might be more specific than I'm saying now, but it just releases them into um, the space outside the cell. But it's not right. as specific as a type three secretion system. For anybody listening, if if you don't know what a type three secretion system, it's actually really cool. If you just Google it and just look at a diagram, it's actually really fascinating. It's a, it's it quite literally looks like a needle coming out of, of, of uh, a gram-negative uh, bacteria into a host cell, so that's really mm -hmm. fascinating. So in, in a gram-positive, like, so as you sort of mentioned, probably nothing like that. Right. That, right. Or has been found yet, at least. Yeah. Right. Yeah. On your lab page, you mentioned that you use um, genetics, molecular biology, and biochemistry to study pathogens that you study. Uh, mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about what the difference are, differences are between the three approaches? Sure. I mean, I, I'm primarily, you know, by, by training, if you like, by what I have to do, a geneticist, a bacterial geneticist. Um, and, and genetics, you know, can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. To me, it means, you know, linking genes to to function, and, and it's one of the most, bacterial genetics is one of the most powerful biological sciences I think there really are, mm -hmm. just because of some of, you know, so 
we might want to find particular mutations that cause a particular phenotype, you know, and it could be whatever phenotype we could be thinking here. And those mutations might be rare, right? They might only happen one in a million, one in a billion times, right? But that's no problem to find those kind of mutations in bacteria because you can put a billion bacteria on a single petri dish, mm -hmm. right? And as long as you can come up with a condition where only the, the guy that has your desired mutation will grow, then you can find it. Right. And so, so, and the other real reason that I love genetics is because it turns up surprises, right? So you come up with a particular phenotype and you say, I'm going to try and find genes that do X, Y, and Z. For example, in Pseudomonas, we wanted to find mutants that would not grow when this pore-forming protein mislocalized, right? And pretty much everything we found I wouldn't have predicted, right? They were new genes that had never been studied before in that organism, in fact, in many cases, in, in no bacterial organism had homologs of these been discovered. And so, you know, it, it really can turn up surprises. We've recently done some work in Yersinia where we've tried to find genes that will compensate for the loss of our stress response system. And we found some things that, again, I, I would not have predicted. If I'd have looked at the Yersinia genome and said, I'm just trying to guess what might be involved, I would never have found these things. But, so that's why genetics is, is something that I that I love to do. By molecular biology, you know, of course, molecular biology just means essentially making plasmids and, and manipulating DNA outside of the cell. Genetics is, if you like, manipulating the genome in living organisms, and molecular biology is manipulating the genome in the laboratory so that you can make specific alterations and then test, test their effects. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, Genetics cannot answer all the questions. For example, if you find some gene in a genetic screen that has a particular phenotype and you look at the, the protein encoded by this gene and you say, you know what, that protein really looks like it has this enzyme activity or genetics can't answer that for you. You have right. to purify the protein right. and then come up with an in vitro assay that's going to allow you to test that it either has the activity or that it interacts with this protein you think it might interact with and, and that's Ultimately, you know, you have to use all the approaches to get to get to the answer. Now, I'm not going to lie. We try and use genetics to to get as many of the answers as we can, but it, it cannot provide provide all of them. So. Right. And to what extent does bioinformatics play a role in, in the genetics that you do? I mean, it's becoming more and more of a role. So, you know, obviously, I. I was trained in an area where we didn't have genome sequences, right? We, you couldn't even do things like microarray and, and, and all the rest of it. For, um, we don't use bioinformatics from a, a predictive point of view that much. Um, we, we do use what I call omic technologies now. Obviously, if we want to look at gene expression, um, global gene expression, we'll use RNA-seq, and, and then that will be, you know, can be incredibly powerful and much quicker than the way we would do things. Um, Previously, so we're not a big bioinformatics. I mean, one thing that can be really useful in bioinformatics, if you're like me and you don't do structural work, is structure prediction. So we've recently been working on a protein um, in your senior that's actually not related to the stress response. It's actually a protein called a pilotin that helps these pore-forming proteins that I've been talking about to get to the correct membrane. Um, and so we we found one of these pilotin proteins and we were studying it. 
And when you look at its primary sequence, it doesn't have any homology to any other known piloting protein. In other words, it does the same thing that this does. But when we fed it into a, a structure prediction, it came out as being predicted to have an almost identical structure to other proteins from, from bacteria that do this function. So to look at the amino acid sequence, you never would have guessed that. But when you say predict the secondary structure and show me proteins that have the same secondary structure, it was, it was remarkable. So, so that, that, that can be useful, you know. And whenever anybody finds a new gene, the first thing we all do now is we do something called a blast search, right, where you feed right. it in and you say, tell me genes that look like this. And usually it'll find genes that look like this. And in my lab, it seems invariably the only genes it looks like are other genes that nobody knows what they do, right? Mm. So that doesn't really get you very far. But now that there are the, the tools out there to predict structure, you can occasionally find a homologous structure. And if somebody's done a structure of a protein, chances are, not necessarily, but chances are they know something about its, its function. So that can really kind of help you. Right. And that's, yeah, I, I feel like bioinformatics is really, really pushing this forward in terms of, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it obviously requires a lot of expertise that not all of us have, and right. certainly I don't have. <laughs> and so if you're going to do, go into that route, you have to do something that we all have to do in science now, actually, is, which is collaborate, find mm -hmm. someone who's got the expertise that you want, and then hopefully strike up a relationship to, for, for, the, you know, for the common benefit. So certainly when we want to do any hardcore kind of biochemical approaches, and, and you know, there's a protein from our pseudomonas work, we're considering doing some structural um, determination. Now, we wouldn't do that in my lab. I mean, it's just not even it's something we could consider. But I would contact, you know, a structural biologist or, or someone, and, and, and you know, which is what we're doing right now, actually. So how how often do you find yourself collaborating? Is it often, or is it only when certain problems you know, arise? Or, it's when. Or yeah. how often are you contacted to be a collaborator rather than it, you contacting someone? It varies. So I, I don't, you know, to be honest, I don't collaborate as much as, as some other people. I collaborate more than, than some other people. With me, so collaborations can be are, are definitely very powerful. They can also be a trouble because let's say I have a problem in my lab and we really need to, to address this question but we're going to need a collaborator so we'll, we'll find someone. The problem is often that it's never as big of a motivation for the collaborator to answer that question as <laughs> it is for you and that can cause issues. Mm -hmm. So what you really hope to find is collaborators where you're both equally um, equally excited. So I'll just give you one kind of incidental example of a collaboration that, that we're involved in. So one of the genes we found in Pseudomonas, um, we had no idea what it did. Right? It came out, it was sensitive to this pore forming protein mislocalization. But it was immediately upstream of something called elongation factor P. Which, and the elongation factor P is, is conserved from bacteria to humans. It's a protein that helps translation at the ribosome. Right? It's not essential for translation, but it kind of helps it. So. Okay, so we'd hit a gene upstream of this translation factor, then what do I do, right? right. So, and the gene upstream looked like nothing in, in the databases. So I go to a conference, and I'm sitting in this conference, and, and somebody I actually know, a friend of mine uh, called Will Navarre, who's at the University of Toronto, was describing something he discovered in Salmonella, which was some enzymes that modified elongation factor P in Salmonella, and that modification turned out to be essential for virulence. And as he was talking about it, I thought, you know, we had a gene upstream of elongation factor P. And I talked to Will, 
And the enzymes you'd find in salmonella are conserved in many, many bacteria, but they're not in all bacteria, and they're not in pseudomonas. And, you know, I, I said to Will, well, maybe this gene we found is a, is a modifier of this elongation factor, but it's a different modification that then happens in all these bacteria. And so we, we kind of kicked that idea around, and, and we didn't do a great deal with it. And then shortly thereafter, I was giving a seminar at um, Ohio State University, where there's a, somebody that Will had been collaborating with called Mike Iver. And Mike worked on elongation factor P. He's a biochemist. Um, and so I told him about this. I said, we have this mutant. We think it might be this modification enzyme. What do you think? And he was very interested. And I said, this isn't something we can do. That's my lab, but your lab could really go after this. And so that's what happened. So graduate right. students in Mike's lab basically took that on. And it turns out we were correct. It does encode a novel modification. And, and we're actually just trying to publish that story. So right now, so that was an idea where you know, there was something I wanted the answer to, and there's no way I could even begin to answer it. But I knew in, in Mike's lab and, and, and Wells, they were people who were very interested in this, this question and, and could, could bring it forward. Um, you know, right now, when I you know, was involved with your class last week, I was talking about a protease from Pseudomonas, and we've literally just started to talk to somebody about solving the structure of that, that protease, because mm -hmm. a structure of a protein is, is really incredibly powerful once you start to try and analyze obviously what it does and how it, how it works. So fortunately, mm. most of the proteins we study in our Yersinia work are integral inner membrane proteins and structure work and biochemical work of those proteins is, is not, not trivial. So, so it sounds like going to conferences is quite beneficial. <laughs> <laughs> it is. In I terms mean, of, uh, it, it's it's kind of ideas. yeah. I mean, like I said, there I was sat in the audience. Mm -hmm. Somebody's telling a story, and it just this thing was going in my head. I'm DFP. That reminds you know, and, and and it all came out of that. And what's equally as as powerful is reading the literature. The same thing might have happened. You know, even if I hadn't been at that conference when Will's paper came out, I probably would have seen that paper and said, you know what, you know, so. You know, th that old saying of whatever it is, an afternoon in the library can save you six months in the lab. And of mm -hmm. course, that's when people used to go to the library to right. read papers. <laughs> but, but reading papers is, is I think, is, is the best idea generator of, of all, right? Because it's not that you read papers and you just do what other people are doing, but it gives you an idea of an approach, or maybe it's reminiscent of something you're interested in that, that just, you know, can. can send you off in an interesting direction. Something you mentioned a couple minutes ago is that about publishing uh, a paper about your, with uh, mm -hmm. your collaboration, you said publishing the story, right? Uh -huh. And I, I think that's an interesting way to phrase it in that a lot of papers, they, they do tell a story about right. it, right? And, and it's, it's not just... Uh, it's, it's not just background hypothesis methods resulted to. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, it is that as part of it, but it really is. It, it has a progression. It has a very. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, science is a story, right? And mm -hmm. that, that when you do research, you you make a finding, and you say, well, the next thing we should do is this, and, and, and there's a logical progression. Now, it doesn't always happen the way it's described in a paper. It might have happened in that order, and people right. will arrange. But what, here's something I always tell people in in my lab when they're writing a paper, and critically when they're giving a talk I always tell them to tell a story. If you go to a seminar without exception the best seminars are the ones where there's people are telling a story if, it, if it's not structured that way if it's just a bunch of information mm -hmm. they're horrible 
right? People are asleep within five minutes. But if it's a story and people can follow and you, you, you know, the phrase I often use is you figuratively take the audience by the hand and walk them through this story you're going to tell them, that makes it clear. And exactly the same with papers. If you write it as a story, you know, we, here's what we did, here's what we saw, here's what we're going to do next. And if you do that for each section of the results, that's something my PhD advisor taught me. It makes the paper easy to write. And just as importantly, it makes it easy to, to read. Right. And you said that your your training was in genetics, was focused around genetics. Your PhD was in genetics. Yeah, it was in bacterial genetics, physiology. Um, How did you end up in, in this field? Well, what got you interested? <laughs> um, that's a good question. So I'm one of those people who always liked science from, from when I was a small kid. I got a microscope when I was about nine. I used to look at things. I used to take notes. I put the date. I put what I was looking at. I draw a picture of what I saw. I'd even write conclusions. And I hadn't had any scientific training at the time. I always wanted to know how things worked. And so, so I was always, always interested in biology. Um, and I actually went to do my undergraduate in, in England at the University of Liverpool and my, my major, as you would call it here in the US, was uh, biochemistry, actually. Um, and things are a little different in England compared to the US. Um, the, the undergraduate was three years. It's very specialised. All I did for those three years was essentially biology and chemistry. Uh, but in the final year, you spend most of your time doing research. And so I was assigned to a lab. Um, and this lab actually happened to work on viruses, but I had to do a lot of manipulation with bacteria to make constructs um, to do the, the viral research. And that got me interested in microbiology, as did the, the lectures that I had. I was always drawn to the microbiology. I just thought bacteria, and still think, bacteria are incredibly cool. They've been around a lot longer than we have. Right. Um, they can live in a lot more diverse environments than we can. Um, and so it was just kind of a, a passion. So um, when I finished my undergrad and was looking around for where I was going to do my PhD, it was basically bacteriology that, that was the only thing. I, uh, well, it's not true. I did. I remember I interviewed a lab that worked on Drosophila, which are fruit fly genetics. But I, I saw somebody looking through a microscope, trying to find you know the one flying a thousand <laughs> that had missing a leg or something. And I thought, okay, that's not for me. I, I that's a little bit more yeah. powerful than, than that. So. But so you 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 figured you were interested in bacteriology. Where did the interest in genetics come in? That that's well, I'll tell you what changed it for me with genetics. So you know, my PhD wasn't really genetics per se. We did bacterial genetics, but we did a lot of physiology and, and biochemistry kind of approaches. And then after that, I joined a lab at Cornell as a postdoc. Where the PI, this was somebody called Valley Stewart. He's he's a real fantastic bacterial geneticist, and so that started to get me thinking that way. But then, what really changed my professional, and as it turned out, my personal life was Valley was teaching a course at Cold Spring Harbor, which is called the Advanced Bacterial Genetics course. It runs every summer. It's been going since I think the fifties, from when molecular biology genetics was born. Um, it's a course where there are 16 students, and by students I mean they can be PhD students, they can be faculty members who want to learn genetics. Okay. There are three instructors, one was Valley Stewart, my advisor, and he took me as his assistant. So I was there for four weeks, and the course completely immerses you, it, it brainwashes you if you like, <laughs> into the power of bacterial genetics, and you, uh -huh. you come away from that 
and not just me but everybody on the course I think came away from that thinking wow and it changes the way from that point on in just four weeks you know in just four weeks but it's four weeks where we were you know going from something like 8 a.m. in the morning until 10 11 12 at night mm. do people were doing research in the lab experiments hearing talks from visiting scientists of course we, we had a lot of fun as well but it, it was complete immersion in genetics wow so that's what did it for you that, that really that's what it, since that course um, it's not that I was interested in bacteria and science and everything before but now whenever I have like a you know let's say a research question the first thing I think about now is how can I address that using genetics? Mm. Before then, that wouldn't be true. Right. Now it's true. Okay. And like I say, it doesn't mean that genetics is the be-all and end-all, but it, but it is an incredibly powerful way to begin mm -hmm. um, you know, an investigation. You mentioned that Cold Spring Harbor course also changed your personal life. How did it affect your personal <laughs> well, life? Well, simply because one of the students on the course, um, this was in 1995, so uh -huh. we're talking 20 years ago now, is now my wife. Ah, so, okay. Um, <laughs> who's also a scientist, who's also here at NYU, she works on, on tuberculosis. So. Wow, fantastic. And um, so you mentioned um, one particular mentor that you had, your PhD advisor. Mm -hmm. Is there, I guess we could, we could talk about your PhD advisor, anybody else, would you, anyone that sticks out in your mind that um, really kind of, and maybe you already answered this question, but really kind of uh, either pushed you in a certain direction or, or changed the way you thought or, or challenged you in some way you hadn't been challenged before? I, you know, that, that's always a tricky question to answer because by naming one person, the other people are going to feel bad, <laughs> right? And I, I had essentially three advisors because I did two postdocs. So I had a PhD advisor and, and two postdoctoral advisors. And actually I had four because I had joint PhD advisors. I was mainly in one lab, but I had co-advisors. Co, um, and they all were different, of course, and they all had different influences on me. Um, and, I, you know, the, the one who really... I guess changed the way I I do things the most um, would have to be my first postdoctoral advisor, Valley Stewart. Valley is um, very smart. Um, he's very incredibly rigorous. He doesn't suffer fools, right? I mean, he, he tells it like it is, and not everyone likes that. I loved it. Um, and he really taught me, I think, the value not just of, do of bacterial genetics, which is where that all began for me, but, but also of being rigorous with your experiments and demanding the most from your experiments and the highest standard. You know, if you come in and one of your controls looks a bit, eh, don't just, you know, brush it aside. Mm -hmm. Say, nope, not good enough, you know. Um, and, and do and it over with improvements. Right? Here's a story I, I always tell about value, which I love. So I was in the lab. And he comes in one morning and he walks off to a bench where I think a, a PhD student was working. And this PhD student had just done a, an experiment that involved a lot of petri dishes. So Valley walks up and said, OK, let's see your dishes. So the student spreads them all out and starts to say, here's what happened here, here's what happened there. And then Valley said something along the lines of, you know, where's your, your negative control plate? And the student said, well, I, I do a negative control. But Valley didn't say anything. Mm. It was dead silence. He just slowly stacked all the plates up into a single pile, picked them up, walked over to the trash can, dropped them in, and then just walked back to his office. And as you can imagine, there was this stony silence in the lab afterwards. But, you know, and that might seem, 
you know, a bit, a bit abrupt, but it was great because mm -hmm. I tell you what, you know for sure that that person never omitted that control again. Um, right. You know, and could see that what value that the valley placed on it. And so, you know, being rigorous and you know, and, and know what I tell the people that train in my lab is the biggest critic of your data should be you. Right. If there's somebody out there who's a bigger critic of your data or finds something wrong that you can find, it's a problem. Right. So you've got to demand the highest standard out of, of your experiments. Mm -hmm. right? And that came from Valley. And, and like I say, that's not to, you know, I got my introduction to doing hardcore research from my PhD advisor, a guy called Jeff Cole in England. Um, and, and then after Valley's lab, I got into your senior. Um, in Virginia Miller's lab, and, and Virginia, the, what she really gave to me is the freedom to, to develop the project that has become what I founded my my career on. So. This the rigorousness that you talk about with with experiments and just mm -hmm. being very thorough. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I'm still very new in the field. Um, I'm only a master's student, but um, with the exposure that I've gotten so far, it really seems like. The more papers I read, especially in the class that you came into and gave a seminar, the more papers we read and analyze and specifically criticize, it's, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm just getting better at analyzing papers, or, but it's getting easier to, to, to criticize them, which, which, which right. kind of means that, so what does that mean? Like, is there always room for criticism, regardless of how thorough you are? Of course. I mean, for one reason, we're all humans, right? And so we all have different opinions. We all maybe think an experiment could have been done in a different way. Maybe we think of a particular caveat that the authors didn't consider. It doesn't mean that the science that's in the paper is bad. It just means that maybe the other thing, other different approaches, or, or maybe there's more information that could have been squeezed out of something. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes you read papers where people do go too far with conclusions. It doesn't mean those conclusions are ultimately wrong, but they really didn't have the data to mm -hmm. really make that conclusion yet. They should have maybe done this extra experiment. But, mm -hmm. but that's how science works, right? Is when, you, when we write a paper, it doesn't just get published, it gets sent to other scientists, and their job is to do exactly that, mm -hmm. to tell you what's wrong with it, to try and, and improve it, you know. Mm -hmm. And although peer review, as we call it, is not perfect, you know, ultimately, you know, we've all had our horror stories with the one reviewer who giving us a hard time, but ultimately it means that the final version of that paper is better than the first version that was, was submitted, or at least right. that's how it should, right. should work. What is one thing that you might, um, that people who are not scientists at a major research institution like NYU, what is one thing those people might not know about working here? Might not know about working here? Mm. That's a tough question to answer. There's a lot of things you, 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 you <laughs> Well, one know. thing that might be surprising about it, if there's, if there's someone who's an outsider to the scientific world, who might not know that a scientist had to, I don't know, maybe deal with something, bureaucracy? Uh, well, there's a lot. I mean, it, it all depends on the level, right? I mean, I, mean, if, I, don't know. I mean, if you're not a PI, there's things you don't know. Like, that. for example, you know, I remember when I got this job and I'd been doing it a few weeks and I was sitting at my desk and I suddenly had this epiphany. I'm like, what, what the heck? Because I just spent all these years training how to 
big an experimental scientist working at the bench and then you get to the, the pinnacle in academia and it's a completely different job. You're now a manager of people and money and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, you know, so it, it really depends on the level. People who are maybe at a scientist at, at smaller institutions would not appreciate that when you get to a bigger institution, particularly a, a, a fantastic institution like NYU or, or Cornell or, or Rockefeller, is the resources. You know, so sometimes I visit schools, you know, that are more kind of smaller undergraduate schools, and, and the resources available to are, are clearly not as good as, as the resources here. And here we're at a big medical centre. And so there's lots of opportunity for interaction with a, a, a really diverse group of scientists. And in addition to basic scientists, mm -hmm. you know, clinic, clinicians, um, you know, who, who can bring a different a different dimension. In fact, I looked at your your website and I saw you'd interviewed Bo Shepson. It's a great mm -hmm. example of a, a, a physician scientist. And yeah. I know Bo, and I'm, I, I talk to him frequently. And, and you know, that, that that's not available if you're not at a medical center. My chat with him was fascinating as well. Um, what is one piece of advice you might give to somebody who would maybe like to walk the path that you've walked? Well, by far and away, the most important piece of advice is you absolutely have to want to do it with all your desire, right? Mm -hmm. You have to have a passion to do this, right? Because it's not always easy. Research in general often doesn't go well. You know, you can get kind of demoralized. Um, in academia, you don't make the fantastic amounts of money that some people in other professions can make. So you've really, really got to want to do it. And I, I even think for PhD students, I'm not saying that if you do a PhD, you have to go into academia. The vast majority don't, and, and, right. and that's how it should be. Mm -hmm. But still, the only reason to do PhD, in my opinion, is that you want to do research at that point. Right? Mm -hmm. You've really got a desire that that's what you want to do. Um, because otherwise you can go into it thinking, well, I need a PhD to have this position or what position. Getting the PhD is going to be a real slog if right. you're not passionate about it. Yeah. So passion is by far and away, you know, it can it can make up for everything else. Mm -hmm. You know, I I'm fortunate in that I get to do a job that I would willingly do for free because I because <laughs> I enjoy doing it. Right? Mm -hmm. I get to say what's going on here, how does this work, and I, I get to try and answer mm -hmm. so. Which is, as you mentioned, in essence, what you were doing when you were when I was really a kid. young and yeah. already taking, you know, you had your lab notebook. Right, and so I'm still doing the same thing <laughs> as when I was a kid, except instead of in my attic, you know, my parents' house, now yeah. I, I get to do it at a university and I get paid. So. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, thank you very much for this fantastic conversation. Appreciate your piece of advice and your time. Thank you. Sure, you're welcome. Termination of current scientist the human episode. Stay breezy.